Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Weird House Cinema. This is Rob Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And today we're looking at a movie that, uh, well, I think the idea of it is that somebody said, what if we made a film adaptation of Orpheus and Eurydice, except (laughs) in the sort of early 90s highway horror style of a movie you might expect to see to come on at like 1 a.m. on TNT after the credits roll from a previous showing of Psycho 3. (laughs) Yes. Yes. uh, We're talking about the 1991 film. Highway to Hell, which I'm 100% positive that I watched on television back in the early 90s at some point, early to mid 90s, I guess. Uh, but I was I was trying to just trying to figure out. Well, I wonder where I saw it. And for a little bit there, I was like 80% positive that I must have seen it on USA Up All Night back in the day. Um, this this ran from on the USA Network from about 1989 to 1998. I don't know if. If that would have if you would if you would have been in the position to to watch this, Joe. Oh, uh, well, I I don't remember ever seeing this movie on TV, but it has exactly that fragrance, that USA mm-hmm. Up All Night fragrance. Yeah, USA Up All Night was basically like it's late at night on cable. Let's show some let's show some B films. Let's, let's show some cult films, and uh, just to spice it up a little bit, you had a host there, uh, Gilbert Gottfried, the um, the stand up comedian who will come back to in this uh, this episode. Served as host uh, at first was the sole host, I think, when they would do it on Saturdays, and then uh, they added a second night. I guess it was so successful they started doing it on Friday nights as well. It was this. Um, a person by the name of Caroline Schlitt, uh, but then she was replaced by Rhonda Shear, and Rhonda Shear was l- the longtime Friday night host, um, mm. uh, who was this, uh, you know, this this uh, charismatic blonde uh, uh, comedic performer, and so they would host these with these, you know, cheesy bits of um, of, uh, of early '90s um, comedy, and introduce these strange films. And I was thinking back on it. And uh, you know, I'm I'm very quick to to reference Mystery Science Theater 3000 as a as a way that I you know early on got into many of these weird and you know arguably bad films, B films and whatnot. And then uh, another big influence was uh, was was Monster Vision on TNT. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I often forget to give USA Up All Night any credit. I think USA Up All Night maybe where I first saw Friday the Thirteenth Part Eight, Jason Takes Manhattan. <laughs> The one that takes place mostly on a boat. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I was actually just looking at some lists of films that were featured on USA Up All Night over the years, and also a spreadsheet that I think fans put together. And there were a lot of Friday the Thirteenth on there. A lot of really like well-known B films. Mm-hmm. Like thinking back on it, I there's a part of me that wants to just attribute the, like the trashiest films to USA up all night. Mm-hmm. And maybe it was just because there was something about it. Maybe it was something about the host segments too, that it felt a little scandalous to be watching it as a child. Like I should not oh, be yeah. up watching. You feel USA like you're getting away with something. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, but in many cases, the other of these lists and I'm like, Oh yeah, these are all great genre films and they would have been edited for television. Obviously. How else will the children learn about Chud? <laughs> exactly. So, um, uh, but one of the things that I found out looking at the list is like, Oh, I, Guess there isn't any evidence that I have I can find right now that Highway to Hell ever aired on USA Up All Night. So maybe it never did, but I stand by what you said. This is the this this film should have aired on USA Up All Night because it has all of that same energy. 
Rob, is it fair to ask if you have sort of a secret secondary career ambition to one day be a basic cable horror movie host like Al Lewis, Elvira, <laughs> Joe Bob Briggs, somebody in that vein? Oh, uh, you know, maybe in another life that would that would have been that would have been interesting. But uh, um, yeah, it's weird to, to look back on it. I never thought about those being actual jobs that people had somehow. You know. I, I guess I didn't think long and hard about it. like why is why why is Rhonda Shear or or Grandpa Munster why are they you know what are they doing I guess on some level especially when I was very young I thought well they're there at the studio it's their job to, to play this film like mm-hmm. when like off camera they're sitting there watching it uh, it air or something. You know, there's something about the the horror movie host role on TV that. Uh, it does serve a function which is suggesting the spirit in which you should receive the movie we are showing you. So mm-hmm. it puts – you know, a, a Grandpa Munster is there to help put you in a mind frame to not just react to a trashy movie on TV and be like, what is this junk? But to react to it with with, with jolliness and a spirit of kind of ironic adventure. Yeah, yeah. And likewise, I think Ron Shear and Gilbert Godfrey were there to, to make you feel like you were you're a little bit up to no good by watching this film. Like you were having a yeah. uh, you know, a wild night out by staying in and watching a Friday the thirteenth movie. Um uh, Joel and the Bots and Mike and the Bots, you know, they were all about you know, showing you that it was it was all right to laugh at these films and take mm-hmm. pleasure in their uh their goofiness and uh and and I guess uh, Joe Bob was there to 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 to, to uh, you know to cast a, a you know a similar um, vibe. Uh, you know maybe maybe it was a little less about um, about you know making fun, but it was more you know about uh, embracing the uh, you know, the weirdness of it. No wait, did we come about this in a total? Have we actually introduced the film yet? I don't recall. Well, we said the title. It is okay. uh, the 1991 film Highway to Hell, uh, which does not feature the ACDC song. <laughs> which it, for which it was clearly named. Uh, I think some trailers for the film feature the, the song, but uh, otherwise you will not hear that song in the movie. I read a trivia claim on the internet. I can't verify this is true, but the, the claim is that they originally wanted it to be the theme song of the movie, but then found they could not afford it. So instead we got a kind of uh, off-label prescription use of alternative rock. Yeah, and uh, I'm, I look forward to discussing the music in this one because it's, uh, it's, it's all over the place. Now this is a this is an Arizona movie. This is kind of a, a nice part two following our episode on Hands of Steel. Um, almost all of this is filmed in Arizona. I think they might have filmed just a tiny bit in Utah as well. But uh, this the, the filming of this movie takes us back to Page, Arizona, but also to Phoenix, Arizona. And uh, yeah, you don't have to watch much of this film to realize. Oh yeah, this this film has a lot of Arizona in it. It's got a lot of tumbleweed diners, just like Hands of Steel, except there was nary a arm wrestling competition anywhere in uh, <laughs> in Highway to Hell, and I was a bit disappointed by that. <laughs> so uh, uh, at this point, I would like to, to ask this question uh, you know, for you, for anyone else who's, who's seen this film. What what exactly is this movie? Is it is it a horror thriller? Is it a broad Beetlejuice style horror comedy? Is it a dark fantasy adventure? Is it Mad Max or Death Race? Um, is it a is it an MTV era Dante's Inferno? I feel like I, I can't answer the question. It feels like it's all of these things in different uh, at different in different degrees at different points throughout the film. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess the most succinct way to put it would be to say it's a horror comedy. But yeah. it's uh, but yeah, it has elements of everything else you mentioned. There was quite a bit of uh, of Mad Max kind of road battle uh, content in there. 
Yeah, almost like if you if you get the filmed in Arizona package, they tell you it's like, all right, well, well, here's your highway link that you can use. Um, how many cars do you want to blow up? And you're like, well, well this wasn't going to be a car chase movie. And they're like, well, it is now because you're filming in Arizona, baby. Speaking of uh, of numbers of cars, how do you think they they created the scene where you were on the highway in hell with hundreds of VW Beetles? <laughs> you remember that? All yeah, the Volkswagens? Yeah. Somehow they yeah. sourced those cars. Um, I mean, I don't know if there was a little bit of screen trickery involved, but but also probably just a lot of, of actual bugs, I guess. Yeah. Um, I, I think that scene is, is one of many in this film that it – it, it does uh, drive home that th- this is a film with a unique vision. There are things that this film wanted that I don't think it, anybody else was asking for. <laughs> I don't think maybe they, they're, 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 even the things that they're, they're doing at times in this film really even all you know work across the board. Uh, but you can't fault it for having a unique vision of things. Um, it's uh, it's it's ultimately ultimately a lot of fun. You you, you never know what exactly is going to come next. You just know that it's going to be in this sort of weird MTV era kind of vibe. But yeah, at heart, horror comedy. I can agree with that. And it is uh, it is an Orphic story at heart. It is it is about going into the underworld to retrieve your lost love, uh, which of course is a is a longstanding uh, mythic trope and and one that we continue to to find throughout our media. Now, before we go any further, there's one thing that I, I wanted to flag at the beginning I thought was kind of interesting about this movie. It has what I would call maybe an omni-mythological view of hell in that mm-hmm. it's uh, – the hell setting in this movie is not just the Christian hell, but it is a, a hell that essentially incorporates elements from every type of vision of hell or any negatively inflected afterlife from all of all of mythology or or even just uh, you know other pop culture from the 20th century. So it's got you know sort of cartoon devil kind of stuff. It's got deals with the devil, devil and Daniel Webster kind of things. It's got some classic Christian uh, Dante's Inferno stuff. But then it's also uh, got as we said this Orpheus and Eurydice basis. So there, there's a lot of uh, Greek mythological visions of Hades in it. Yeah. And then all of this, of course, set very much in the American desert. Yeah. Um, and, and interestingly enough, too, this is we're dealing with a, 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 a well, the, well, the writer was American, but the, the director who we'll discuss here is Dutch. So you wonder, too, like how much of this is like an outsider's view or understanding of America and the American desert uh-huh. uh, through the lens of cinema, um, et cetera. So, yeah, you have all these different energies going on in it. Oh, yeah. Well, it's even got kind of a, a, a dusty tumbleweed grandpappy on the side of the road to offer wisdom and give the hero oh, yes. uh, tools he needs in order to complete his quest. Oh, yes. Yes. And he's wonderful. Yeah. It's got uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi and overalls. <laughs> All right. Well, let's go ahead and listen to just a little bit of the trailer here, but not a whole lot. Just just a little bit of it, because this is a dumb trailer, um, in my opinion. And, and certainly don't watch it, because this is also one of those trailers where uh, and maybe this had to do with like the the fact that this movie sat on the shelf for a little bit before they finally released it. They they took the approach of let's just put every special effect shot in the film in the trailer, including like uh, major character deaths and so forth. Hey yo! Join us on a dazzling cinematic adventure down the highway to hell. Hey, yo. A winding route. 
that stretches from here to eternity. Highway to Hell, an unforgettable journey from sovereign pictures. Now we'll have some fun. Now, does the trailer give away the identity of Satan? Because yes. in this movie, no, he gives everything. Everything yeah. is given away. That's criminal. I I hate it when you know. I I am I am very much of the teaser school of trailers. I, I really mm-hmm. like it when the trailer gives you one thing from the movie, and tra- instead of trying to cram in little glimpses of tons of things. Yeah, and yeah, this one definitely makes that mistake. It's just little glimpses of everything in the film. Once you've seen this trailer. The film has nothing new to give you, really, except except maybe extended improv uh, lines from Ben Stiller, which, which we'll get to. <laughs> I noticed you were down on the Ben Stiller part. I thought it was. I thought there were some some of his improving was okay. But <laughs> he's uh, so Ben Stiller plays a cook at a diner in hell called Pluto's Cafe, which is kind mm-hmm. of funny. And so he's grilling stuff on the sidewalk outside, and and he says, uh, "Why use mesquite when you've got concrete?" Yep. You know, I liked it. <laughs> it's, it's fine, it's fine, but um, it, it felt like there was a lot of it. <laughs> also, Ben Stiller is jacked in this movie. Did you notice that he's been working out before they made? Yeah, this. I mean, I think he was always jacked. Is the thing about Ben Stiller? Like, if you yeah. if you go back and watch, you know, various early appearances, uh, yeah, he was always pretty jacked. He just, you know, generally had his shirt on, but you could see it was pretty muscular underneath there. I was impressed. All right, so let's start at the top with this. The director is Dutch filmmaker Altai de Jong, born 1953. Uh, he seems to have he seems to have shifted to American projects after doing an episode of Miami Vice in 1987, and then he went on to direct this, obviously, but also 1991's Drop Dead Fred, starring Phoebe Cates and Rick Mayall, uh, who's famously of The Young Ones. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, I've not seen Drop Dead Fred, which is a, a like a grown up with an imaginary friend, like a whimsical Amer- imaginary friend, uh, uh, type of a plot. Uh, but we were, I was looking at the reviews. It seems like nobody liked this when it came out. None of the adults anyway, because mm-hmm. when we were talking to our producer, Seth, he said that when he was a child and he watched this film, he very much enjoyed it. And therefore it, he has like kind of a warm spot in his heart for it. Uh-huh. So, uh, I don't know. I'd love to hear from anyone out there who has, uh, who has opinions on this based on especially watching it as a child. Well, you know what? If you love it, more power to you. I got to say, it looks intensely annoying. But then again, stars Phoebe Cates. Who's, I mean, the, the eminently likable Phoebe Cates. A lot of people probably know her from Gremlins, you know. Mm-hmm. And Rick. I mean, Rick is terrific. I, I, he, Rick, Rick is amusing and everything. And I've seen him in some terrible films. Uh, but he always brings that wonderful uh, manic energy of his to a performance. Now, as for Ate de Jong, uh, it seems like, like basically, like I say, he had some some Dutch films before he came to the U.S. He directed these two films, both of them, you know, very much kind of supernatural comedy type deals. And then he seems to have, for the rest of his career, he's just largely been about more independent and uh, in many cases, you know, more far more European films. Um, a lot of them look like they're a lot more serious. So... Uh, I don't know. I guess he got in, had a taste of that, uh, you know, that, that uh, mainstream American filmmaking and maybe decided uh, he'd rather do other things. 
but he seems to have had a, a long and, and seemingly successful career uh, past Highway to Hell. Now, the writer uh, for this film uh, is actually a major name. Uh, this is Brian Helgeland, born in 1961, Academy Award-winning screenwriter for L.A. Confidential. Oh, that's a great script. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it, was, it was a wonderful film. Now, pre-L.A. Confidential, um, his, he, uh, he seemed to work in horror quite a bit. So he wrote uh, the fourth Elm Street movie. Uh, was that mm-hmm. one of the good ones? Uh, yeah, I'd say that's one of the better ones. Yeah. Uh, he also did 976 Evil, uh, as well as episodes of Friday the 13th, the series. Is 976 Evil that movie about a phone number that when you call it, it kills you? I think it is. I don't know that I ever saw that one. But that also feels suitably uh, like late 80s, early 90s, the idea that there are evil phone numbers that you dare not call. And they're probably advertised during USA Up All Night at the time. Oh, it was directed by Robert England, who plays Freddy ah. Krueger in the Nightmare on Elm Street movies. And yeah, okay, so people who who dial nine seven six evil in this movie, yeah, they they get some kind of curse or they 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 turn into murderers. I think uh, I I haven't mm-hmm. seen this one, but I do find it interesting that there is a movie of this type for every technology. So you've got the ring, which is about a, you know, videotape that when you watch it, it kills you. And there's fear.com about a website. You go there and it kills you. Here's a phone number. You call it and it kills you. Um, You've got the mangler. That's about, I think, a washing machine. (laughs) You use it and it kills you. you Yeah. Industrial washing machines will kill you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, But you know what they never got to? They never got to a reclining chair that kills you. Oh, I think they did. I think they did eventually, but not not um, not during the the twentieth century. But I think I did run across some sort of a killer sofa, killer lazy boy type of a movie. Wait, you mean Something the twenty first century? Last years. Yeah, some sort of twenty first century film. <laughs> but as far as I know, uh, Helgeland had nothing to do with that. Uh, but uh, after the success of uh, of of L.A. Confidential and uh, uh, Assassins, he went under. Right, it's a string of big scripts, including Conspiracy Theory, The Postman, Payback, A Knight's Tale, Mystic River, Man on Fire. Um, uh, oh, I should, I, he he uh, he had also early on both re- he wrote and directed an episode of Tales from the Crypt, and he went on to direct A Slight Case of Murder, along with Payback, A Knight's Tale, Forty Two, uh, and, and many many more. So what I'm saying is the script for Highway to Hell is just above reproach. <laughs> I get the sense that a lot of what's on screen has been significantly sort of ad-libbed or built upon uh, <laughs> beyond what's on the page. I, I can't say that for sure, but I uh, at least I've seen that alleged with like all of Ben Stiller's parts, which uh, are, are said to have been ad-libbed. And I don't know, this feels like a movie that incorporates a good deal of improvisation. But yeah, conceptually, there's a lot of good gags in it. Yeah. <laughs> All right, well, let's talk about our core character, core cast here. So first of all, we have our, our main hero here. We have our, our Orpheus, and, and this is uh, the character Charlie, uh, played by Chad Lowe, born 1968. At first, when I saw him, I was like, wait a minute, I didn't know Rob Lowe was in this. <laughs> and then I realized yep. something, it wasn't quite there. It was Rob Lowe in the like you know wrestling video game character creator, but somebody has moved the sliders around just a little bit. And then I yes. realized, oh, okay, this is Rob Lowe's extremely similar looking and sounding younger brother. Yes, yeah. And uh, and I have to say, Lowe, Lowe is perfectly fine in this, playing our yeah. brave but naive boyfriend who has to travel to hell to get his girl back. Um, 
Chad Lowe did a lot of TV work, including Spencer, Life Goes On, Melrose Place, ER24, Pretty Little Liars, and I think more, far more recently, Supergirl. I would say both of the main two actors in this, this the movie doesn't require a lot of them in terms of dramatic nuance, but, uh, mm-hmm. but for what it does require, you know what? They're both good. Yeah, yeah. And so his, uh, the, the girl that he must retrieve from hell is the, the character Rachel, played by Christy Swanson, born 1969. Um, if you're not familiar with it, this is the original Buffy the Vampire Slayer from the 1992 movie that came out before the series. Yeah, I've never seen the movie. Yeah, it's, um, I, I've forgotten most of it, but I mean, it exists. And I think yeah. <laughs> Paul Rubens is in it. Um, oh, okay. But, uh, but yeah, Swanson was also in Dude, Where's My Car, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, and Flowers in the Attic. Uh, TV viewers might also know her from the series Psych. All right, now in the Joseph Campbell theory of the myth cycle, your young hero <laughs> has to have a, a mentor figure, a sort of like wise older figure who appears to give supernatural aid near the beginning of the story and encourage the hero to sort of like breach the boundaries and go into the underworld or the other world. And in this movie, that character is played by is, – is the dusty grandpappy we talked about earlier, uh, played by Richard Farnsworth. Yeah, uh, Farnsworth plays Sam, and this brings the second future Academy Award winner into this picture. Uh, so Farnsworth was a longtime stuntman uh, turned actor. He did a lot of Western work, but eventually popped up in films with, with acting roles, um, films like The Two Jakes, Misery, and, uh, and probably most notable of all, his final film role, The Straight Story uh, by David Lynch, in which he plays an old man who makes a, this long journey by lawnmower to mend his relationship with an ill brother. And one of the, uh, the things about this is that, again, this was Farnsworth's last role. Uh, he, uh, he was actually terminally ill during the filming and uh, went on to uh, earn an Academy Award nomination for Best Actor. So what I said earlier about him being a, a winner, uh, he did not win the Academy Award for this role, but was nominated. And I think that's, that's still pretty good. But at any rate, uh, Richard Farnsworth, yeah, he's great in this, playing the old man who has the secret knowledge. He's the old, he's, he plays also that kind of horror movie trope of the, yeah, the old feller that's going to warn you about what you should not get up to. Um, but then he's also here to guide our hero once he does get into trouble. Oh, yeah. I mean, in a way, you could look at that... Tr- well, I guess this is a much different version of that. But I was thinking about, uh, you know, Crazy Ralph in in Friday the Thirteenth, who, who warns all the kids not to go to Camp Blood because it's got a death curse. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Crazy Ralph comes off as if you know he is menacing in his own way. Uh, this old fella, I guess he's a little bit ominous when he first starts like wiping the windows at the service station and it's playing these dramatic music stings. I don't know why mm-hmm. it's doing that, but I did find it funny. So whatever you were doing filmmakers it did work i i enjoyed that scene there's also a funny part right after that where there's there are dramatic music stings when uh chad Lowe goes into the service station and he goes to the coffee stand and there's like the sugar caddies and stuff and it's going dun 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 <laughs> uh, but anyway he he ultimately plays a, a very uh a kind wise and benign figure in this movie who who arms the hero with the the supernatural tools he will need in order to defeat the great evil all right. Uh, the next uh, actor of note in this, Patrick Bergen, uh, born 1951, plays this character that we encounter in hell, uh, is introduced uh, by the name of Bezel and turns out to be this kind of satanic mechanic, um, in a, <laughs> and I guess what is an homage to um, the Rocky Horror Picture Show. 
I assume if the trailer spoils everything for you, it's okay if we go ahead and spoil everything for you, the the big twists and reveals and so forth. Um, yeah, let's go ahead and say, yeah, this is the point of no return if you want to go into this spoiler-free. Abandon all hope of surprise, ye who enter here. Uh, yeah, so uh, as you might guess from the name, Bezel, who appears at first as a helpful, friendly figure in hell, turns out to be Beelzebub, uh, Satan himself, uh, though Beelzebub, I, I want to be clear, is not always represented as identical to Satan. Sometimes he's just one of the demons of hell. Uh, but yeah. in, in in some Christian traditions, Beelzebub and Satan are the same, and here th- they take that tack. Uh, though I, I thought it was very funny when we first meet him. I, get, I don't know how surprising it is supposed to be when you <laughs> ultimately find out that he has Beelzebub because his name is Bezel. They're doing a very Ed Wood, you know, Dr. Acula thing with yeah. that but at least the characters act surprised um i have to point out that when we first encounter patrick bergen he also has a very nice mustache um which oh, I'm, yeah. I'm kind of taking it on uh, on myself for this to be uh maybe a theme for this month's weird house cinema since we're uh, participating in uh, november uh that we need films with strong um encouraging mustaches uh in the picture well cheers to your satanic mustache <laughs> Later on, he's clean shaven, and then later on beyond that, he's like in full demon mode with horns and stuff. Yeah. Uh, his accent also changes a little bit, <laughs> depending on uh, what mode yeah. he's in. Yeah, sometimes he sounds almost Australian. Did you get that? Yeah, well, I, so uh, just to, to, to back up, Patrick Bergen, if you're not familiar with him, Irish actor, um, who was especially hot in the 1990s, appearing in such films as uh, Sleeping with the Enemy, Patriot Games, Robin Hood, and Love Crimes. Uh, He also played Captain Sir Richard Francis Burton in Mountains of the Moon in 1990, which I haven't seen in a very long time, but I remember as being great. I don't know how it holds up. That was one that also starred uh, uh, Ian Glenn as John Speak. Uh, also featured uh, Richard E. Grant, uh, Fiona Shaw, and Peter Vaughn. uh, oh, and he also played, uh, uh, Bergen also played Dr. Frankenstein in the 1992 TV uh, adaptation that I, uh, that I fondly look back on. I saw he was also in Lawnmower Man 2 Beyond Cyberspace. Yep. Um, it's, I think that one's also Job's War. Uh, <laughs> I think it has different <laughs> titles. Uh, oh, and, he, and Bergen also played Dracula in a 2002 TV series. So he's, he's gotten a little bit of the Dracula, a little bit of the Frankenstein. He's basically a horror icon. But anyway, yes, he's Irish. No, before (laughs) you move on, I'm hung up on this. Was it Lawnmower Man 2 Beyond Cyberspace Job's War? I think it has different subtitles depending on where you're encountering it. Okay, Um, so you weren't going to get both. Yeah, I feel like we've we've discussed this before. I don't know if it was on mic or off mic, but uh, we'll just have to cover Lawnmower Man 2 at some point and just put all this to rest. Okay. (laughs) It's got a good cast. It's got people I like in it. <laughs> and it's sort it of based on a Stephen King story, so. <laughs> okay. Yeah, about as much as this movie is based on Orpheus and Eurydice, yeah. <laughs> anyway, back to his accent. Yeah, so Patrick Bergen is Irish. And I feel like early on, his character is more Irish. But by the end of it, I'm not sure what accent he's using. And I'm not sure how much of the, the demon um, special effects makeup is changing the way he talks, you know? Mm-hmm. But anyway, Patrick Bergen, is a, he's a fun screen presence throughout. Oh, would this be our second movie within a month that's got a, an Irish big bad? You got Dan O'Herlihy in Halloween 3? Oh, yeah, I guess so.
All right. Um, another major villain in this piece is a character we'll we'll describe in more detail in a bit. But uh, Hellcop, aka Sergeant Bedlam, uh, is play. This is our our our, our big um, physical threat of a character uh, of a villain, uh, played by C.J. Graham, who didn't do a lot else besides this, but he did play Jason Voorhees in Friday the Thirteenth Part Six. Jason Lives is that one of the good ones. Uh, as we discussed last time, I don't know if there are any good ones, but that one's certainly enjoyable. That's the first one that just commits to, yeah, Jason is undead. He's back from the grave. Uh, something I appreciate, instead of having to go the Halloween route and always explain how he didn't die when you thought he did last time, instead they said, yeah, he died. He's just Now Now this is a supernatural series. It wasn't before. Now it is. So what? I think that's ultimately admirable to say we got to shake it up a little bit. We're not ready to go to space, but we'll do this. Yeah, uh, precisely. So part six is a lot of fun. Uh, it's the first one where he's undead. This is the undead Jason. And I got to say, Hell Cop is a lot like Jason. He is. Uh, he doesn't speak. He's just very uh, impassive and violently efficient. There, there's very little emotion in his performance. Yeah. And, and ultimately, I think that's one of the reasons this character really stands out. Uh, and is, I think, one of the real highlights of the film. All right, but other characters, other humans involved. Uh, we have this ca- this uh, character, Royce, who's like a biker in hell who also has a sword, and he's played by Adam Stork, born 1962. Can you explain this character to me? I don't think I missed anything, but I didn't... I felt like this character was supposed to mean something that I never understood. Yeah, like I don't know if there were key scenes that had to be cut, but he was probably the least interesting thing in the film for me. Whenever he was on the screen, I was I was wondering, where's Hellcop? What's Hellcop doing? <laughs> Other characters should be asking, where's Hellcop? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. To better explain what I'm saying, I feel like this is a character that would almost make sense if he was supposed to be tapping into like a type or another character known from outside the movie, the way that mm-hmm. Gilbert Gottfried shows up as Hitler. Yeah, and so yeah. like that part is supposed to be funny because the audience is supposed to already bring knowledge of who Hitler is and why he would be in hell. But this character, it feels like that, except we just have no idea who this guy is. Yeah, exactly. It would have made a lot more sense and would have required less wondering if if we were like, oh, yeah, well, he matches up with this historical or mythic figure. And therefore, uh, you know, we, we don't have, we don't have to think too long and hard about what he's supposed to be in this film. But as far as Adam Stork goes, he appeared in Mystic Pizza, Death Becomes Her, and did a lot of TV work. Uh, he was also in the TV adaptation, the miniseries of Phantom of the Opera. Uh, this is one I've actually seen. I, I've, I kind of remember enjoying this as a kid. It starred Charles Dance as Ooh. the Phantom, and it also featured Ian Richardson and Burt Lancaster. Oh, how did I not know about this? Charles Dance as the Phantom. I would love to see that. Yeah, I rem- it was. I think it was my first uh, introduction to Phantom of the Opera, actually. and. Um, and so, so I don't know what, if, how that weighs it. It might have been terrible, but it was like the first real fandom story I watched. Oh, and quick note, uh, in the film, though, here, uh, in Highway to Hell, Royce has a gang of bikers with him in hell, and they are apparently played entirely by the uh, alt-rock band from the late 80s, Das Psycho Rangers. <laughs> I don't know this band. Yeah, I, I think they only put out like a couple of things, so they weren't they weren't huge, but they are credited in the uh, the credits for the film as Dos Psycho Rangers. 
I do remember that, yeah. All right, our our next uh, uh, actor of note in this, uh, Pamela Gidley, plays Clara. This is the old man Sam's lost love. Uh, this will make sense when we describe the plot a little bit. But she lived 1965 through 2018. She played the title character in the, the uh, post-apocalyptic sci-fi, I guess that one was also kind of a sci-fi comedy deal, uh, Cherry 2000. Um, though, if you're only familiar with the with the poster art, Cherry 2000 is not the main character in Cherry 2000. Uh, it's, a, it's a female bounty hunter character who's helping to retrieve Cherry 2000. And Melanie Griffith. Yeah, Melanie Griffith plays. Yeah, Melanie Griffith is the lead. Melanie Griffith is not Cherry 2000. Ah. Uh, but uh, Gidley was also in Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me. She played uh, Teresa Banks. Oh. Now, as we mentioned earlier... We we do have some Ben Stiller in this film, but it goes beyond that. We we have the whole Stiller family in <laughs> Highway to Hell. Actually, sometimes in multiple roles, right? Because Ben yeah. Stiller, I think, plays both the cook at Pluto's Cafe, the Hell Diner, and he plays Attila the Hun later in a scene where you you're, you're watching like evil historical figures sitting around a table. Oh yes, because okay, so at the 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 scene where it's the historical figures, yeah, it's Ben Stiller as Attila the Hun, Ben Stiller's sister Amy Stiller playing Cleopatra, and Gilbert Godfrey playing Adolf Hitler. Um, they're playing cards or something, and uh, and I should add that I think um, Gilbert Godfrey is the only one even halfway trying to do an accent, uh, and it's yeah. still very much Gilbert Godfrey doing a German accent. And I think his choice is to portray uh, Hitler in hell as insufferably whiny. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's excellent casting. Excellent casting. Uh, but yeah, it's not just uh, just Amy Stiller and Ben Stiller, uh, it, but it's also Jerry Stiller, who plays a desk cop. And then uh, Jerry Stiller's wife, uh, Anne Mira, uh, plays uh, Medea, who is a waitress at Pluto's, the, the, the hell diner. Um, and of course this is fun because, uh, they, they were a stand-up comedy act back in the day. They were a husband and wife stand-up team. Yeah. She, she's quite funny, uh, in the diner scene and Jerry Stiller, he, I, d- I didn't fully understand what was going on between him <laughs> and the hell cop, but eventually the hell cop like shoots him with a, with a dimensional portal gun. Yeah. Yeah. But he's like messing with Hellcop. He's like asking for it. He's being like really annoying towards him. And I don't, I don't know what the relationship between the two is supposed to be. He's like, that's what I do in hell. I I prank Hellcop. But he's the only one who's not afraid of Hellcop, which, which seems fitting. That's a good point. Yes. He's the only one in the movie who doesn't fear him other than Satan himself, I guess. Yeah. And Satan himself respects him. Like he knows this is a good henchman, but yeah, Jerry Stiller's just... To not buying it at all. So, uh, such a, I always, I have no, I still to this day, I have no idea why this is the case, why the entire Stiller family is in this strange film. Um, but it is one of its charms. Oh, but I guess this comes back to that thing I read. Uh, I think I already said this, but uh, I read on at least the IMDb trivia page, if this is correct, it claims that Ben Stiller ad libbed all of his dialogue in the film. I don't, I don't know if that's true, if it could be all of it, but certain, certain parts do feel rather improvisational. Oh, yeah. I mean, he's, he's basically a background cameo that was al- allowed to swell and take on life. <laughs> like, nothing he's saying yeah. is important to the plot. Uh, so, I, I buy that 100%. I bet he did improv all of these lines about frying eggs on the sidewalk in hell. Now, uh, another actor of note in this, uh, Kevin Peter Hall, 
who lived 1955 through 1991, appears later on in the film playing the character of Sharon. The um, uh, you know this is the, the character from Greek mythology, but also uh, you know a character pops up in Dante's Inferno. This is the uh, this is the boatman who brings you across the river into the underworld. Yeah, and he's portrayed here as having his eyelids sewn shut. Yeah, and and this is neat for Kevin Peter Hall because you have all seen Kevin Peter Hall movies, uh, but he's generally uh, covered in a lot more makeup. Uh, He played the Predator in both Predator 1 and 2. Uh, He also played the alien in Without Warning, uh, the very first uh, movie we watched for Weird House Cinema. That's right, yeah. He played uh, Mutant Bear in 1979's Prophecy. That was his first film. And he played Harry in Harry and the Hendersons, as well as Big John in Big Top Pee-wee. So, yeah, that is interesting. Somebody who's been in a lot of well-known movies and is, in a way, himself well-known for, like, great physical performances, but people wouldn't recognize his face because he's always behind a bunch of makeup. Yeah. So he he uh, sadly died in 1991 due to um, AIDS-related pneumonia. He had contracted HIV from a blood transfusion, apparently, uh, and this was his final film role. Now, here's another interesting, really, this is a cameo as well, but of also of this very telling of the vibe of this film. Lita Ford shows up playing a hitchhiker. Uh, she was the lead guitarist for the all-female rock band The Runaways in the late 1970s before going solo as a glam metal act in the late 1980s. Uh, she sang a duet with uh, Ozzy Osbourne on the 1989 single Close My Eyes Forever. So she's a denizen of hell in this movie who has a a, a freaky early encounter with uh, Chad Lowe when he shows up. Yeah, that leads right into um, this strange attack by a, uh, one of hell's ice cream salesmen. Yeah, it's a guy who's got an, an ice sequence. cream scoop and he's like, I'll kill, I'll eat you. Yeah, and uh, our character has to blast him with a holy shotgun. <laughs> Um, I will mention the cinematographer on this one because this is kind of interesting. Uh, Robin Vigian, uh, born 1939. Uh, this, uh, this guy was a cinematographer on such films as Hellraiser, Hellraiser 2, The Fly 2, The NeverEnding Story, well, 3. Uh, <laughs> he, he also worked in the camera and electrical department on Raiders of the Lost Ark, Never Say Never Again, and The World Is Not Enough. And he was second unit director on Event Horizon. Hmm. So I especially thought the Hellraiser, Hellraiser 2 thing was interesting, given that we have a character in here with some strong Cenobite energy. Yes, that's right. And speaking of that character, I would say one of the things I found most impressive about this movie is the design of Hellcop. Hellcop looks really interesting. One of the main things about him is that he's got writing carved all over his face. And apparently that was a touch coming from the – the person behind special makeup effects in this movie, Steve Johnson, right? Yes, Steve Johnson, born 1960. Uh, he has special effects makeup design and creation credit on this. He is a, has a very long history um, in the practical uh, special effects and makeup special effects. Uh, for instance, he made Slimer for Ghostbusters. He worked on such films as The Howling with, uh, with Rob Bowden. He worked on American Werewolf in London with Rick Baker. And he co-ran the special effect, uh, makeup effects studio at Boss Films that worked on Poltergeist 2, Fright Night, and Big Trouble in Little China. His company XFX worked on The Abyss Species, uh, as well as four seasons of the 1990s Outer Limits series. I was excited to, uh, to see that. Uh, so he, he's worked on loads of, uh, of films with, with interesting, practical, special effects makeup. He worked on Blade Two, for example. So oh. uh, 
So yeah, this is a film, knowing that Steve Johnson is heavily involved, you know that that if nothing else, uh, the, the monsters and the makeup and the gore, it's all going to look really good, and it sure does. Yeah, I, I know that last one's going to be special to you, because Rob, I know you're a Blade too, man. Yeah, yeah. All right, let's talk briefly about the music here. Um, so the, the, the music is mostly credited to Hidden Faces, which I believe is a trio of, of individuals. Yeah, this is a musical group. Uh, I looked them up, and they have four film composition credits on IMDb. Several. I, I don't think I'd ever seen any of these movies, but uh, I just wanted to mention several because they were funny. One from 1990, a movie called Nuns on the Run. This is a <laughs> farce crime comedy starring Eric Idle and Robbie Coltrane. So Sir Robin and Hagrid, I guess. Um, I am right about that, right? That's Hagrid. <laughs> That's Hagrid, yeah. Um, I, I saw this as a child, by the way. I, really? I don't, so I don't remember I, anything I, about it. I've, I've never seen it, <laughs> but these are gangsters who have to run and hide from the police and from hitmen who are simultaneously after them. And the scheme they come up with is they're going to pretend to be nuns and hide in a convent. <laughs> is this also the plot of Sister Act, except... Here it's Eric Idle and Robbie Coltrane. Um, I'm not sure. I feel like there was another film that had a very similar plot that came out around the same time, but possibly Sister Act. I don't think I've seen. I don't think I ever actually saw Sister Act. I'm just familiar with like the musical numbers from it. Just looked it up. Yep, it sure is. So in Sister Act, Whoopi Goldberg plays a lounge singer who is forced to join a convent after being placed in a witness protection program. So yes, she is hiding out in a convent, pretending to be a nun to in order to hide from hitmen who want to kill her. Oh, I had to look it up because, yes, I think it's also basically the plot of the 1989 film, We Are No Angels, which is a Neil <laughs> Jordan film. Uh, and in this one, what, I think it's Sean Penn and Robert De Niro who pretend to be priests. Uh, this time it's uh, not nuns, but priests uh, uh-huh. hiding uh, from uh, from somebody. Wait, priests or monks? Priests? Priests in this case. Definitely okay. priests. But this seems to very much be a thing. Wise guys or gals um, hiding within the church, pretending to be monks or priests or nuns or something. Right, right. Okay, so you got nuns on the run uh, for Hidden Faces. Then you got Highway to Hell. And then uh, the other two movies that they composed for are called Under the Hula Moon and The Players Club. Players Club is a 1998 movie written and directed by Ice Cube. Hmm. Uh, And then Under the Hula Moon, I I was looking at the IMDb synopsis. This is a movie in which Stephen Baldwin plays a man named Buzzard who lives in Arizona. And he thinks he's going to get rich by inventing a type of new sunscreen called camo, which looks like camouflage when you put it on. Hmm. Okay. That I can see that, that plot going in, in totally different directions. It could be serious. It could be comedy. Well, I think, I think it eventually turns into a kidnapping movie. So I think, uh, Chris Penn plays like an evil guy in that movie who kidnaps, uh, Stephen Baldwin's wife. Okay. And he's got to go rescue her. Now, when I was looking uh, looking at information about this film, Highway to Hell, um, I, I, of course, looked it up in Michael Weldon's The Psychotronic Video Guide. And in it, he, he specifically mentions that th- this movie makes use of tangerine dream music from the film Miracle Mile, which is a 1988 apocalyptic thriller starring Anthony Edwards. And 
at first I was, I was, um, I didn't doubt Michael Weldon because Michael Weldon, uh, aside from being an expert on all of these, these films, um, he also generally had a really, you know, he has a really great head for the, the music scene. Uh, so you, if, if he mentions a particular release, uh, or a particular artist being involved in a film, I mean, he's, he's invariably correct. So I didn't doubt him, but I was looking around and like IMDb does not list Tangerine Dream on the credits. Uh, that they have there. Uh, they don't, don't have anything about Tangerine Dream in the trivia section. Uh, you know, there's nothing on the wiki. Um, but if you if you watch the full credits for the film, they do say um, special thanks to Tangerine Dream for additional music. So some of the time, I think when we're when we're watching Highway to Hell and the music is particularly good, uh, we're actually listening to Tangerine Dream. Huh. So you, do you think subconsciously that's why you picked this movie? <laughs> uh, um, I mean, probably, probably not, but it, it's kind of a neat idea that I kind of like accidentally uh-huh. um, tripped into a Tangerine Dream uh, score um, uh, because there, ha- there are Tangerine Dream scored films that I've kind of been eyeballing. Like we could talk about that and that'd be an excuse to really discuss Tangerine Dream. Um, <laughs> so, uh, and we'll probably come back to that because ultimately this is not the place to really get into Tangerine Dream because I'm not even, I'm not even exactly sure which bits of music that we're hearing are Tangerine Dream bits. I just suspect that certain ones, the ones that were more, um, uh, you know, that gave you more of this, uh, you know, this sort of spacey, otherworldly feel, that those must have been the Tangerine Dream moments. But I'm not familiar with Miracle Mile or their work on Miracle Mile, so I can't really identify it. All right, well, are you ready to get into the plot? Let's discuss the plot. Okay, so I don't think this is one of the ones where we're going to go scene by scene and do the whole thing, but instead maybe mention things that stood out to us as, as, we, as we go along. So there was a strange choice, I thought, to begin the live-action portion of the movie. Now, there's a, there's a credit sequence that's showing you this like animated postcard that says, Greetings from Highway to Hell. Um, but then after that, it begins the live action portion of the movie with video game footage. You're watching mm-hmm. a cop play an arcade cabinet game called Highway to Hell. And I know they did not create an original video game for this movie. So I was trying to figure out what actual game this is. Nothing on the web tells me. I thought I could match something, you know, just match the screen to something. It looks kind of like Outrun or Final Lap, but the, the HUD isn't quite right. So I don't know what game this is. Hmm. But it ties into something that's mentioned in the text epilogue. So after the last scene fades out and you get that, you know, that text crawl on the screen telling you what all the characters did, it says that uh, the Chad Lowe's character, Charlie, goes on to become rich and famous by developing a bunch of very successful video games that are all hell-themed. I guess it's imagining that he made Doom or something. (laughs) Though otherwise, video games are not a theme in this movie. It's only the opening shot and, and then that epilogue. Yeah. Yeah, the epilogue that was totally unasked for. Like you don't you don't reach the end of this movie and you're like, I wonder what happened to them. Yeah, like it doesn't no. matter. Like, no, everybody wants to know. It's like the last episode of the Wonder Years. You want to know what everybody <laughs> became when they grew up, who got married to who. Like Chad and Rachel escaped hell. Like th- that's all you need to know. Like that's enough. Nothing else they're gonna do is gonna top that. Um so you know, why do we need this epilogue? I totally disagree. I think we needed to know that Chad became a video game lord. You know, he probably had to testify before Congress at some point when they were holding a <laughs> hearing on violence in video games and hell imagery. And then uh, Rachel, uh, what does it say? She opened a bunch of successful hell-themed pizzerias. 
Yes, that's right. She did. Yeah. I want that information. Oh, and it says that their dog, Ben, uh, went on to star in dog food commercials. Yeah, yeah. They felt it was important for us to know this as well. The, the <laughs> narrative would not be complete without the dog food commercials. Yeah, and they're also like, and Satan, still Sataning. That's how, like, he doesn't actually, <laughs> it's not actually doing anything differently. He's just, he's, he's still just doing the same old. But okay, opening well, scene. Well, that's it. We've covered beginning to end there, right? <laughs> That's right. No, there are a few things uh, we should mention in between. So, so uh, opening scene, you, you got uh, Chadlow and Kirstie Swanson. Uh, you know, they're, they're again. Um, what are their names? Yeah, uh, Charlie and Rachel. They are they're eating basket burgers at some diner in the scrubland. I think it's supposed to be outside of Las Vegas, and uh, and Charlie is nervous because uh, the situation is. I think they're like teenagers who ran off together to get married in Las Vegas. So they're trying to elope and they think that their parents found out that they ran off to get married and they're trying to and that they're going to send the cops after them to bring them home. Yeah, so they're they're very concerned that this cop that was playing the video game is coming for them and is going to and is in fact following them uh when they drive away from this diner. Right, so they bolt from the diner with with their dog Ben, uh, who's a very cute dog. I love to have the dog. I had to at the beginning. I had to be like, okay, Google and go into does the dog die dot com and look it up. <laughs> no, the dog does not die. Well, this dog, I I don't know because I'm not around your dog all the time, but I felt like this dog looks like your dog. Not immensely, but yeah, sorta. Plus, the main character's name is Charlie. Charlie is the name of your dog, so I guess that That's also true. added to it. Yeah. Uh, but so their dog's hanging out in their dinged up Ford Pinto. And I love the the Pinto, by the way. So they, they're driving around in a Pinto <laughs> with a jiggling triangular light up roof sign for a pizzeria called Nunzio's Pizzeria. So mm -hmm. I guess we're to understand that uh, that Chad Lowe is a pizza delivery boy. And when he takes his burger back to the car, he puts the burger in his mouth and then lets the dog eat it out of his mouth, which, okay. <laughs> But it's pretty great because you established this is I mean, this is really well put together because we're very just a few minutes into the film and you already know pretty much what these characters are, what they're doing, what their dynamics are like. They're super in love. He loves his dog, too. Uh, but he's he's riding around in this pizza delivery car, clearly doesn't have uh, like two nickels to rub together. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, so you can and, and they're, they're just they're very concerned that this cop uh, is going to be after them. And, and really, if they ran away, if they think the cops are after them, they're in, they're totally in the wrong vehicle to try and sneak away and uh, hide themselves in the, the great American desert. Right. You would think if they were going for subtlety, he would take the pizzeria logo off the top of the car. Mm -hmm. One thing I got to say about the diner, I, I love when restaurants used to have big signs for Vienna sausages on the walls. This diner there at the beginning <laughs> does. Yeah. Uh, was, was that ever a selling point for restaurants? I don't know. But there was a restaurant here in Atlanta I went to one time that had one of those big vintage uh, really? Vienna sausages posters. Yeah. Or not God, posters. so people would buy them in a store? I guess so. I think of Vienna sausage. Are we talking about the same thing? Like the sort of like reconstituted Canned meat hot dogs? wings? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's, I don't know. It's quality, I guess. Mm. Um, but so, yeah. Anyway, they hit the highway. And when they're out on the freeway, they notice the motorcycle cop who was playing the arcade game and the diner is still behind them. And, uh, and Chad Lowe is paranoid. So Charlie thinks they're being followed. Rachel doesn't, but Chad's afraid. So he gets off on a dark exit called Black Canyon Road to see if the cop will do the same. And the cop does not get off after them. So they're, they're just, you know, off there in the dark. And he's like, ah, actually, we're okay. But then Charlie has a great idea. He's like, 
I know. Let's take this dark, unfamiliar back road to Vegas instead of the freeway. Absolutely. Yeah, through the desert in a questionable automobile like you do. And I was wondering, are there back roads to Vegas? I, I'm not really familiar with Las Vegas. So I, I looked on Google Maps and maybe sort of. I mean, there are a bunch of different freeways and highways going in. There's one sort of back-ish looking road that I think goes through the Lake Mead recreational area. So I don't know if that's what they had in mind or, or maybe uh, maybe the person who wrote this wasn't all that familiar with Vegas either. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, it's the horror movie trope of let's let's go on the back road, let's let's get off the main path, and surely nothing bad will happen to us. Right. So off they go into the darkness, and they end up pulling up at a service station called the Last Chance Service Station, and there's an old man hanging out there in a rocking chair. And Rob, I don't know if 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 I'm reaching here, but. If you notice that the old man's rocking chair has a rear view mirror on it, just like a truck would, <laughs> is this an Orpheus and Eurydice thing about like the theme of looking back behind you? Because we, we ultimately mm. find out that this old man, his his sweetheart was lost in the underworld and he never retrieved her. I didn't really put it together like that when I, I rewatched the film, but I think you might be right. Well, so anyway, they they get the tank filled up, and and uh, this is the scene I was describing earlier. That's actually very funny because the old man's cleaning the windows in an ominous manner, and mm-hmm. the coffee station has these chilling music stings. Uh, I'm not quite sure why they decided to do that, but I thought it was funny. Um, and before they leave, the old man warns them. He's like, you know, are you heading for Vegas? And Charlie says, why do you ask? And he says, well, it's an old road. It needs a lot of repair. You'd be a lot safer on the interstate. Uh, but of course, you know, being kids, they ignore him until the car won't start. And so then uh, when they can't get it started, Rachel has to go open the hood and fix it. And here we find out she knows stuff about cars. She took auto shop in high school so she can mm-hmm. repair it. And that'll come up again later. But the old man seems concerned. He offers to let them stay in his extra cabin uh, and they they ignore him. So when they're leaving, he says, you keep an eye out for two Joshua trees. If you get sleepy, don't pull over till you pass the second one. Mm. So I like that. That's a sort of, you know, that, that has a convincing ring to it. Yeah, yeah, and plus, it's what this this portion of the film too is. I found especially well shot because it's it's shot at night, so it's night in the desert, uh, you know, out in the middle of nowhere. Uh, so I I feel like I was really getting a, a a strong ominous feeling from all of this. And granted, you know, some of it is you know familiar tropes: the old man warning you about the dangers to come and the road ahead, and of course the kids aren't going to listen to him. Uh, but it's but it's well presented, right? And so out on the road. Um Charlie is monologuing about how much he loves her and and he's saying, you know, sweet, sappy stuff. And then he realizes she's asleep and hasn't been listening to him. And then he tries to talk to his dog and then also realizes the dog is asleep, (laughs) Uh, (laughs) which uh, was funny. And then we see ominously a Joshua tree. Uh, And then, of course, as you might imagine, uh, after he passes the Joshua tree, Charlie starts to get very sleepy while he's driving and starts to nod off. Anytime that happens in a movie, I always feel like, I get the, (laughs) I don't know, that's the kind of scene that, that gets me. And as he's falling asleep, he suddenly swerves while driving and is immediately confronted by a highway patrol car on this, this dangerous section of the road. And we, so we see the officer get out of the car, and immediately something is wrong. His 
boot sizzles on the pavement when he steps out like a hot mm. iron pressing into meat and you see him holster his gun and it looks like something out of RoboCop mm-hmm. and then you see his handcuffs which are not really cuffs they are actually hands they're like these rotten zombie hands that are chained together oh my god and the i mean all of this is is just is perfectly executed too like this is the yeah. the point of the film where everything is just working perfectly so like the boot sizzling looks great the robot robocop revolver it 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 really like weirds you out when you see it because you're not expecting that and then the handcuffs made of actual hands um, they're they're articulated in a way that really feels lifelike and, and ghastly. So even if the idea sounds goofy, and it is, you know, handcuffs that are hands, like they look ghastly and bizarre, and you know that you're this is not a good place to be, and this is not the cop you want pulling you over. Right. So he approaches them menacingly. He shines his flashlight in their eyes, and then we get the face reveal on Hell Cop. And he looks ghastly. There is writing covering his face all along his jawline and on his cheekbones and on his cheeks and his forehead and his lips. Um, it's it, it looks it looks mad and satanic. And I'm uh, I, I couldn't quite read what the writing said. I don't know if you caught any words in there. I couldn't. Uh, I mean, I see something about eyes, uh, and you know, I can make out a few other little words here and there. According to IMDb. His chin has the letters SJ plus LQ, which is supposed to stand for Steve Johnson, the makeup artist we already mentioned, and his wife at the time, Leanna Quigley, uh, who, of course, is a, a scream queen icon uh, herself. Uh, but looking at this close up, I'm, I'm having trouble finding those letters, but supposedly they're there. Hmm. Oh, but beyond that, so he has sunglasses like a lot of scary cops in movies do. This is actually mm-hmm. a. I don't know if this is something that's been written about anywhere, but I think this is a recurring trope that, uh, you know, that, uh, scary abusive authority figures in films, uh, you know, dictators or abusive cops or whatever often have these sunglasses that hide their eyes that sort of make them less human or uh, don't allow you to see where they're looking, which adds a kind of panopticon effect or don't allow you to read their emotions. And, and so this cop, it is, it plays into that, especially by having him not just wearing uh, totally opaque sunglasses, but the sunglasses are actually riveted to his temples. So they're not like, you know, just mm-hmm. resting on his ears. Yeah. Hellcop is, is wonderful. And I, I feel like the, the sort of energies converging here, you have kind of a Hellraiser Cenobite quality to the character. Um, also reminds me a little bit of the, the zombies from shockwaves, the Nazi zombies, but then the sunglasses, your bit about the sunglasses is absolutely correct. I feel, feel like there's a strong homage here to the man with no eyes from cool hand Luke. Remember the, uh, the chain gang boss that has those uh, gleaming sunglasses. And if you'll remember in cool hand Luke, uh, the man with no eyes is never actually like defeated, but there is a scene where he gets his sunglasses knocked off. You know, and that's kind of a, a, you know, a slight victory for the characters who've suffered under them. And indeed, in this film, we find out much later in the film that the the hell cop's weakness, uh, it happens to be the sunglasses. And if you destroy his sunglasses, you destroy him. Yeah, I thought that was a really nice touch. So, uh, so yeah, in the, in the end, that is how uh, Rachel, in fact, defeats him by by shooting him right in the sunglasses with the with the magic gun that uh, Charlie will be given in a bit. But all of this with the Hellcop just even approaching the car, 
you know, all of these elements are present there, but also you're doing this, this thing that always works well in a horror movie. You're taking a real-world frightening and potentially life-threatening experience, and then, uh, you know, which is being pulled over on the highway, and then you're twisting that into this slasher horror direction with a cop that is, uh, you know, beyond, uh, you know, the dangers of a human cop. They are essentially like a, a hellish Michael Myers character, uh, you know, just stalking up to your vehicle. Uh, so it just exceptionally well done. I feel like I feel like Hell Cop could have been his own film, you know? Yes, though, I think Hell Cop might be less fun in a movie that tried to push him in a more serious horror direction. True. Um, like, I feel like Hell Cop lives very, very comfortably in this sort of comedy vision of hell that's otherwise populated with all these zany characters. True, yeah. Yeah, it, it might be hard, harder to pull off. It, but ultimately, I think it's it's one of those where, like, the makeup alone and the performance, I'll give the performance some credit, um, it, it also elevates it to, you know, above the comedy to a certain extent. So, yeah, yeah. I'm not sure it would it would necessarily work outside of the comedy. Uh, environment, but ooh, it, it does feel legitimately creepy in this film. Yeah, agreed. Uh, oh, a couple more details about him. I forgot to mention he his uh, his name tag reads Sergeant Bedlam, mm-hmm. and he uh, and he's got a badge that is just a pentagram, of course. <laughs> but so anyway, we get this confrontation where Hellcop kidnaps Rachel. He takes her to his car, and then he does like evil magic spells on the car that essentially that like eliminate the back door. He like puts her into the car, and then the car has no door for her to get out of. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he and then he drives off through a portal into another dimension. And the, the patrol car that he's in, the, it's kind of like a spaceship too. Like it's a yeah. really souped up feeling vehicle. So that adds this extra kind of like sci-fi magic feel to it, where you're just left asking, like, what is Hellcop? Like it's uh, you know it's 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 crazy. He's he's like a he's from hell, but he also has a RoboCop gun that shoots portals. It's uh, it's it's wonderful. Yeah, it, yeah, it's kind of a combat buggy in a way. Uh, his car is oh and of course the license plate on it reads damned (laughs) uh but anyway so uh uh, Charlie and Ben the dog are, are left behind after Rachel's been kidnapped and and he's like, oh no, what, what are we going to do? So he he freaks out. He drives back to the service station and explains things to the old man. And it turns out, what do you know, this is a recurring problem of people getting uh, disappearing on the highway here. Somewhere between the two Joshua trees, there is just a road – that leads straight into hell, and this has happened before. And uh, and then there's there's a really great moment where Charlie asked to use his phone, and Richard Farnsworth says, "You can't phone hell, boy. You can drive there, but you can't <laughs> phone hell." <laughs> yes, it's such a great line, but but Farnsworth brings it to life. <laughs> yeah. And so it turns out that the hell cop's mo is generally that he kidnaps beautiful women off the highway, and so. Uh, the, the the old man tells his story about how his sweetheart Clara was in fact kidnapped by the Hell Cop ages ago, and then he he starts to reveal the magical the special items the supernatural aid that he's going to give to Charlie before he goes on his journey. So he pulls out this special gun. It's kind of a holy boomstick. It is a handheld shotgun with silver clamshells embossed on the stock. Yeah, major doom vibes here with the holy demon sling shotgun. Yeah, I thought the same thing and and 
this was funny because it made me think, what if the premise – oh, because the story is that in fact Clara, the old man's sweetheart, she made him this gun or at least she – I get, I don't know if she made it from scratch, but she at least put all the special decorations on it. And it makes me wonder, what if the premise of Doom had been that Doom guy's sweetheart made him his shotgun? <laughs> But anyway, so the old man uh, gives Charlie the holy shotgun and he gives him a special holy car. Uh, What's the deal with the car? Well, the old man doesn't explain. He just says that there's something special in there that will help you. Something in the car. Something special. Is there payoff for that? Because I don't remember payoff for that. Yes. Yes, there is right in the conclusion where they're trying to escape hell at the end and they're racing the hell cop. And then Rachel discovers the nitro booster. Oh, that's the special. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. I don't know if this old man is into drag racing or something. I'm not sure. Well, he might have been back in the day. He was in the original The Fast and the Furious, the one from the (laughs) 60s. You know, this is the thing. They could do a prequel to Highway to Hell, prequel to Hell, and you have like the young (laughs) Sam, the original story of, uh, of the encounter with Hellcop. So eventually Charlie does get into hell. I think he's told that to get there, he has to drive back and forth between the two Joshua trees and believe. That's the... (laughs) The thing and so he he's yelling like i believe and eventually it works and he goes straight into hell and I, what i thought was interesting is they don't make hell a really supernatural looking place it's just the mojave desert yeah it's just like a an alternate version of the american desert in which all the typical american desert kind of like uh you know route 66 kind of stuff uh, it just has a satanic element to it or, or you know, sometimes right. more of a, a Greek underworld element to it, depending on where they're drawing from. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's just the mo- mundane Mojave Desert, but filled with undead people and demons. Like they, they decide not to spice it up with flames in the sky or anything. And, I, you know, I guess I can get behind that choice. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they, had, they clearly had the desert to work with, which is an evocative setting in and of itself. And and then they, they ultimately make a lot of really fun and interesting choices in kind of Beetlejuicing up the desert. So, you know, it ranges from, you know, diners that are occupied by zombies to, uh, I loved this because this, I don't understand what this means, but you had whole like roadside garbage uh, cleanup crews, but mm-hmm. they were all Andy Warhol and instead of, since it's hell, everything's backwards, I guess. So instead of picking trash up from the, the side of the road, they're emptying trash onto the side of the road. Uh-huh. Yeah, I guess that one sort of went over my head. I, I don't know if it was a joke about, about pop art or... I don't know, but, but it, it feels appropriate for, again, this is the kind of thing you, you couldn't get away with in a serious hell movie. If it's serious hell movie, then, you know, I guess you got to have, uh, you know, something like, like Legend, uh, you know, where it feels like... Uh, like you're in some sort of a torture inferno pit, but uh, but here you know in the, the the vibe of this film, you're like, okay, this makes sense. Of course, there are, you know gangs of of uh, Andy Warhols garbaging up the street. Okay, well, what stops along the way do we want to highlight from from this journey? Because so it, it's sort of a, a a zigzagging weird adventure here. Who the just it has a bunch of little vignettes. Um, I guess we should mention Pluto's Cafe, right? This is the one where, mm-hmm. where Ben Stiller's working as the cook, uh, cooking food on the sidewalk outside, and the diner is full of undead cops covered in cobwebs. And uh, th- there was one thing here because, uh, that I liked because – so we see Hellcop taking Rachel to this uh, diner and he handcuffs her to the 
to the to the counter while he's I don't know getting coffee and a donut I guess uh, he he's occupied doing something I think he's shooting Jerry Stiller with the gun that sends him to another dimension and meanwhile mm-hmm. Rachel escapes by scalding the hand handcuffs with hot coffee. <laughs> Uh, you also, you included in our notes a screenshot from it. Um, I had not noticed this, but there's something wonderful going on with the donuts. Oh, well, it's, so this is a diner in hell that's full of undead cops, and there mm. is a glass display case full of donuts, but it's chained shut. Ah, perfect, perfect. Now, here we get a bunch of different run-ins. Uh, we get run-ins with these desert bikers we mentioned earlier. Uh, I, I don't know if there's a whole lot interesting to say about them. No, they they were, like I say, kind of the least interesting part of the film for me. Yeah. Uh, then we get some Mad Max-style road battles between Charlie and his old man mobile and Hellcop in his battle buggy. And, of course, uh, Charlie does not win this road battle, and he eventually gets his car wrecked. And, um, and when his car is wrecked uh, – oh, there is one part I did like where he walks up to a telephone in the desert – that it, he picks it up and, you know, there's an operator who's like, motorist aid. And then he's like, yeah, my car's wrecked. I need help. And then the operator is just like, sounds like you're walking, geek. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there are a lot of fun touches like that. There's a lot of media in hell, a lot of commercials and, yeah. and uh, you know, TV and radio commercials, a lot of times aimed specifically at the character who's listening to them, um, you know, oh. to, to, to taunt them. One of my favorite things in the whole movie was the Sticks beer commercial. Mm-hmm. That it so the Hellcop's car has a TV in it, and so uh, Rachel is riding in the back of the car while the Hellcop's Hell taking her somewhere, and uh, <laughs> and and she looks at the TV and it's this announcer like holding a beer mug, and he goes, "When I come home from a long day in hell, there's nothing I'd rather reach for than a fine brewed bottle of Styx beer, made from the filthiest waters from our own river Styx. Styx beer is a third more toxic than any other regular beer. The worst beer, the filthiest beer, the deadliest beer. It's Styx beer. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty great. There's there's also one later where um, what Rachel is taunted with a, a vision of herself uh, having to work in a pizza restaurant whilst uh caring for like a whole bunch of children a whole bunch mm-hmm. of infants um, yeah. that's pretty fun as well now after his car is wrecked charlie is aided by Beazel, the uh guy who seems very nice and helpful at first this is patrick bergen we eventually find out that he is the devil himself um there there is one more scene i wanted to mention though in, in hell before we go on to anything else which is the good intentions paving company scene oh yeah I thought this was very good. Uh, so it's, <laughs> I guess, getting quite literal with uh, with with this saying. You know, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. So there is a, there's like an asphalt paving truck called Good Intentions Paving Company, and then it's all these people explaining why the bad thing they did had a good reason behind it, and then they just get chucked into the mixer, and then, and then their their body parts are used to pave the road to hell. Yeah, this but this part was pretty great, and and I think now that I'm thinking about it. Like, this feels like a gag from a Mad Magazine. And ultimately, this whole movie feels like an extended Mad Magazine uh, uh, bit, you know? Uh, Even right down to the fact that 
that Hellcop is scary and that a lot of the monsters that we see look really cool because I remember reading, especially like parodies of films in Mad Magazine. And a lot of times, like the illustrations were really good. You know, it was like the, these were artists that were creating these. So I remember like a Robocop, Robocop 2 parody in Mad Magazine. And I remember as a kid, maybe sort of catching the, the jokes, but also being like, oh yeah, those robots look really cool. You know, um, <laughs> Uh-huh. So strong Mad Magazine energy in this film. There's another thing this movie does, which I, I think I've realized it's an obligatory type of joke that every hell comedy has to do. And the joke structure works like this. You criticize a merely annoying public figure or celebrity by situating them in hell amongst evil dictators and murderers. So there's like one part, there's one scene here where there's like a table uh, and it has a bunch of names. It says like seats, it says reserved for, and I can't remember the name, the rest of the names of the table are like dictators and killers and stuff. And then one of them just says Jerry Lewis. <laughs> I, I think literally every like Simpsons hell thing has had a joke of that structure. It's, it's always mm-hmm. there. Now, eventually in the film, we go to Hell City. There's a, there's some fun to be had there as well. There's some we, we increasingly get out of the desert uh, and into more interesting set pieces when we get into Hell City. So there's some some weird stuff with like uh, mannequin people that explode into plaster when they're blasted with the holy shotgun. There is a a fake Rachel who then transforms into a like a hideous Minotaur woman. And, yeah. um, and of course, as with Hellcop, the Minotaur woman looks very real and very frightening, um, uh, though is ultimately more of a, a comic threat. Ultimately, there's one part where the devil tries to tempt Rachel into staying in hell with him instead of leaving. Mm-hmm. And the way he tries to tempt her is saying, like, you could have everything. But the, the example of her having everything is being able to play the violin. <laughs> Remember that? Yep, yep. <laughs> like, was that her dream? I don't. I don't. I don't remember anything about that. It's. It's also like the. There's another point in the film too where he he uh, he makes an offer this time to Charlie, and he's like, uh, something to do with sports. Like you could own a particular sports team, but he chooses the wrong sports team. So he's really not that great at tempting people. Um, though I guess no, he thinks oh, yeah, he is. Yeah. He's like, uh, you could be the, um, you could be the quarterback of the, of the Dallas Cowboys or something. And he's like, I might've done it if you'd said the Niners, but (laughs) yeah, he's puts on the Niners cap. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's weird. This is one of those films where, okay, so Patrick Bergen, of course, very charismatic and, and, you know, they put a lot of energy into creating this, this Satan character for him. And I kind of got the feeling that towards the end of the movie, the movie falls in love with Patrick Bergen's Satan. And so the final moments of the film seem to be more about Satan than anything else. Like there are these scenes of Satan. First of all, we'll go ahead and say, like, it all comes down to a drag race. Like, you guys want to escape hell? Well, you got to do a drag race with Hell Cop. And if you win, you get to leave hell. And so Satan's watching this from, from a hillside. He's smoking a cigar that, like, one of his minions lights with their own burning finger. Um and and like when we end up closing the the out the movie they start playing this song um it is maybe the next time performed by Deborah Crandall Parson which is kind of catchy but it's like such a weird vibe like is this about satan or are we just like like now the film has situated the devil as its central character i thought it was about these kids trying to escape hell 
That's a very good point. I, th- I think some Batman movies are sometimes like this, where the actor playing the villain is so much more fun that it really kind of becomes about the villain. Yeah, yeah. I did want to mention that there's a payoff to the earlier thing where where uh, Rachel is said to have taken auto shop because, and, and I think this is supposed to make sense, she hot wires Hellcop's car for them to escape in it. Uh, and I was like, do they teach you to hot wire cars in auto shop? <laughs> maybe it was an extra credit project. I don't know. But then of course, yeah, they, they make it out of hell and then hell cop comes out with them. And basically they have one last show showdown with hell cop, which I think is fitting because like hell cop is the real physical threat. He's not the tempter and uh, you know, mastermind that the satanic character is. Uh, so you get that one last uh, battle with hell cop uh, and she blasts the glasses off of him and he's defeated. He like explodes uh, like a stick yeah. of dynamite. And it's, it's light pretty, pretty shoots nice. out of his eyes. Yeah. yeah light, light shoots out of his eyes and then it's like dynamite and gasoline. Amazing. Yeah. That's highway to hell folks. Yeah. <laughs> so it's uh yeah, it's it's a fun flick. I feel like it it holds up. It's not uh not tremendously offensive or anything. Um <laughs> you know, it's uh we were talking about this like it's got a few like it's got a little bit of nudity in it and maybe a little bit of language, but nothing that isn't like easily removed for cable airing um because again, I I inevitably saw this on cable back in the day. Um, oh yeah. That's that's the point you were making that it's strange for the concept being hell, that it's actually a relatively mild R. Yeah, yeah, but but also it's not like it's not like it would otherwise be a kids movie. I don't know. It's just this strange. It's this strange film with this this vibe all of it, all of its all its own. That's like a little bit Beetlejuice, a, a little bit um, Dante's Inferno, <laughs> a little bit uh, Mad Max, and uh, you know. Um, uh, you know, death race uh, you know, uh, thrown in there as well. It's uh, it's it's a wild movie uh, that seems to be going in a number of different directions, and at times it it really works well. I, I wish I'd seen it on USA up all night when I was <laughs> like, I'd have it as part of my brain for my whole life. <laughs> well, if you want to see it now, uh, luckily it seems to be pretty widely available uh, digitally. I think I watched it on Amazon Prime, just like included, you know, without a subscription to another channel. Um, and I think it's been made available on DVD and perhaps Blu-ray in the past as well. But yeah, if you're looking for Highway to Hell, you'll be able to find it. It's out there, um, and uh, yeah, I, I think it it holds up pretty well. Uh, it, like I say, it's, it's worth watching, you know, for, for stuff like Hell Cop and the, the weird, uh, performance by Patrick Bergen. Uh, yeah, it was a lot of fun. Okay. One last question. We find out in the epilogue that, uh, that dude, dude goes on to make hell themed video games. Uh, Rachel goes on to do hell themed pizzerias and the dog goes on to star in dog food commercials, but they're not hell themed dog food commercials. What's up with that? <laughs> Seems an asymmetry. Oh. Yeah, yeah. Because if it was hell themed, then you're, then at least you can say, well, the experience of hell inspired all of them, or perhaps the devil really did give them all some sort of a a blessing for the uh, for, to take with them. You know, they're, they're, he's still actually controlling them all. Yeah, my dog's a little hell raiser. Only the best for him. <laughs> I did notice in the credits. I guess this is pretty standard, but you had one dog actor playing the dog, but then you also had a stunt dog actor. So that's nice. Oh. I didn't know. The dog was named Rags. You remember that? Yeah. Yeah. But I forget the name of the dog that was the stunt dog. The dog did a very good job of peeing on command in the scene where he faces uh, Cerberus. You remember that? 
Yes. Oh, goodness. There's a stop motion Cerberus in this. We didn't even, we almost got out of the episode without mentioning that. This film also features a practical effects, like stop motion, three headed dog. And it's a, it's a lot of fun. Yeah, and it has a confrontation with the cute little dog, Ben, and mm-hmm. they they just sort of like regard each other, and then Ben pees on a rock. And yeah, <laughs> I thought that was appropriate. <laughs> Done purely for comedy, uh, and, it's, and it works. Yeah. All right. Well, we're going to go ahead and close it out here, but if you want to check out other episodes of Weird House Cinema, it airs every Friday in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed. We're primarily uh, you know science and culture type podcast, but on Fridays, we put most of that aside and just discuss a weird film like Highway to Hell. Huge thanks, as always, to our wonderful audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 